You are listening to the Rural and Northern Psychologist Podcast, hosted by Dr. Connor Barker. Welcome, listeners, to another episode of the Rural and Northern Psychologist. I am your host, Dr. Connor Barker. Today, we are honored to have a guest with us who has dedicated his research to understanding and addressing a pressing issue in the field of rural psychology. Dr. Tyler Pritchard is a visiting professor from Memorial University. Dr. Pritchard earned his PhD in clinical child and adolescent psychology from the University of Guelph. His teaching and research covers various aspects of developmental and clinical psychology and research methods. Dr. Pritchard has also contributed to clinical work at McMaster Children's University in Hamilton, the Children's Hospital of Eastern Ontario in Ottawa, and Bloomington Place in Cornerbrook. Dr. Pritchard's research explores the realm of suicide theory seeking to understand the complex web of thoughts and actions that leads individuals to consider suicide. Further, he has a particular interest in the unique challenges faced by individuals living in rural Canada, where suicide prevention takes on a different context. But his scope doesn't stop there. Dr. Pritchard also explores the motives, risks, and benefits of online activity for those who self-injure. He further combines his passion for psychology with computer programming and software design to help develop innovative methods for teaching research techniques and statistics to budding psychologists. And when he's not in the classroom or the lab, he enjoys a variety of interests, including hitting the gym, strumming his guitar, and sipping on a strong cup of black coffee, which I have in my hand right now. (laughs) So (laughs) welcome, Dr. Pritchard. It's great to have you here. Thank you so much, Connor. What a lovely introduction. <laughs> so thanks. Well, um, so you just finished a workshop with a number of psychologists from across rural Canada. So I was hoping you could provide our listeners with a little bit of uh, a general orientation to contemporary suicide theory. So um, could you provide just kind of an overview in terms of what we're seeing right now in the research in terms of suicide theory um, and... Um, yeah, kind of get us started there. Yeah, for sure. Um, so I think the last two decades, there's been some very strong sort of progression advancements in suicide theory, mm-hmm. um, which is you know, very important. So we sort of had this big question on why people would choose to kill themselves or hurt themselves. We've been asking this for centuries. Um, mm-hmm. So we can think back to Durkheim, pose this big question to what do we attribute these causes? We have some fantastic contributions in the mid late 20th century, people like Aaron Beck, which I'm sure we're all familiar with and his sort of, um, monumental push for the idea of hopelessness being one of the main drivers for suicide. Um, and people have really built on that, particularly in the last two decades. So in around 2005, 2006, um, Thomas Joyner published a seminal, um, a book, it's a very more a novel style book, but it was groundbreaking and, um, people have really ran with that. And I would mm-hmm. say Thomas Joyner's interpersonal, or sorry, uh, interpersonal psychological theory of suicide is probably the most used framework for trying to understand suicide today. Um, so why do people like it so much? Well, it builds on past work. 
and I think it's relatively easy to understand. The major contribution that it brings is that it is one of the first, what we would call an ideation to action framework. Mm-hmm. So Joiner's theory tries to explain how individuals progress from having thoughts about suicide to having more serious thoughts, to really intending to hurt themselves, to planning, to engaging in a, in a suicide attempt. So this was really groundbreaking. Um, so just a brief overview of that theory. There's a few major constructs that we need to consider. Um, so the first one's being thwarted belongingness. So individuals really feel like they have no connection, no relationship. Um, another major construct, perceived burdensomeness. So the key idea here is that people feel like they're a liability to others. Mm-hmm. And if people feel one of those things for an extended period of time, they might begin to think about suicide. Mm-hmm. If both of these things happen, according to the theory, um, and the individual really feels like it's not going to get better, so hopelessness begins to sort of bring itself about, um, they'll actually shift to more serious ideations. Mm-hmm. Um, however, we sort of, as humans, have this evolutionary instinct to keep ourselves alive. And Joyner proposed that this is very hard to override, to, to actually harm ourselves, And the next, I would say, major contribution to Joyner was the, the idea of this acquired capability for suicide. So this is an individual's ability to actually engage in suicidal behaviors and override this sort of evolutionary instinct that we have. Um, there's two key pieces of this. One, people need to be not afraid to die. So fear sort of deters people from making the attempt. And they also need to have a pain tolerance. So even if they're not afraid to die, if they do begin to engage in suicidal behaviors, the pain may sort of divert them, throw them, um, make them not want to do it. So when we combine all these things together, we can sort of explain the progression from a thought to all the way to a suicide attempt and potentially a death. Um, other theories have ideation to action frameworks have come since this. Um, there's a really nice theory from David Klonsky and his team called the three-step theory. I'll save us some time and maybe not go over that in detail, but um, I, I strongly recommend if you're not familiar with these frameworks, definitely check out sort of these seminal publications from Joyner, from David Klonsky, um, from Rory O'Connor, and, and, and his team as well. So. Yeah. Yeah, no, and um, one of the one of the themes that you brought up in your session yesterday that that has kind of stuck with me is this this notion of psych ache, yeah. um, and uh, you know that was a new term for me, but um, you know, kind of thinking about you know folks who who live in pain, right? Folks who yeah. have a, a lot of whether that be stress in their lives or that or that sense that things aren't getting better. Um, you know, that, that, that pain is something that they, that they live with. And then when we, when we attribute that pain as something that is always going to be there and isn't going to change, you can kind of see where the hopelessness kind of can come in after that. I was wondering if you could speak a little to kind of uh, another preventative thing, which is that, that, um, that sense of connectiveness, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, connectiveness, both being uh, a protective factor, but also potentially a risk factor in suicide ideation or suicidal behavior. Yeah, yes. Yeah. So that seems to be another overlapping theme with contemporary theories, this idea of connection. So uh, how connected I am I to both people and my sort of social networks, but also connection to um, these other aspects of our life. So for example, our career, 
our values, these types of things. Um, so connection seems to be pervasive across the theories. We can, we can see, or at least, you know, I hope we can see how relevant it is when we consider these rural areas. Um, one by the sheer number of people around us. So maybe there's fewer people that we can build connections with. If, if these connections that we have, um, go off the rails and we start to, you know, lose connection with these people, there's less others for us to sort of go to. Right. Uh, um, so, you know, very important when we consider these rural contexts. Um, but again, this does seem to be this overlapping piece, right? This connection to other people. Right. Well, and I'm even thinking as, you know, we talk about these theories, you know, what, what would the implications be for, for rural people? And I, and I yeah. think one of the strengths of a rural, um, uh, a rural context is, uh, the connection that a lot of folks have to their communities, right? That can be yeah. uh, a fantastic thing. It also can be a source of the psychic, exactly. right? Um, and so I guess when you think about, you know, our, like the contemporary theories on suicide, you know, what, what would you, how, how would you see those interactions or what do you see that's particularly relevant, uh, for psychologists or, or folks who are living in rural and Northern areas of Canada? Yeah. So, I mean, you make an excellent point that, you know, a lot of these constructs or these, these things that we think are causal mechanisms for suicide, they can sort of go both ways. I think this is what you're, you're sort of getting at. Um, a lack of connection as a risk, but also, you know, if we have a very strong sense of community, um, we're all in this together, which we do see in a lot of rural places, right? This really strong sense of togetherness, um, that we might not see in less urban areas, then of course it's, it's sort of going to be a protective factor. Um, you know, one thing that always comes to mind for me is, um, cultural dissonance. So this is kind of linked to this idea of belongingness as well. Um, at least my discussions with a lot of younger individuals growing up in rural areas, um, you know, if they don't feel like they fit in as well, mm -hmm. it's really hard to sort of find your corner. Mm -hmm. Um, and, you know, the digital age makes it easier, but that then you have the added piece. Well, now rural individuals might be at a disadvantage when it comes to technological advancements, things like high speed internet. So how well can they connect with, you know, their video gaming friends, um, the people on Twitter and Reddit and, and these sorts of things when there's tech barriers as well. Um, yeah, so, I mean, it, these are considerations that need to be made. And as a clinician, if we, if we believe that connectedness is integral sort of to suicide prevention, I think we need to get really creative when we work with rural individuals on how can we foster connections and also sort of go beyond social connections, right? We know that these, these theories believe that that could be an integral part in suicide prevention as well. If we can get connected to some other aspect of our life, I, you know, you just mentioned, um, you know, I go to the gym. I, I feel like we just both hit the gym. I believe, you know, I think that's a, a big thing <laughs> that, you know, I'm connected to in my identity and, um, mm -hmm. so, you know, I think we get creative and we can, we can find other things that people can get connected to like nature now. Like, have we, you know, this is something that might be particularly relevant for rural areas if we can get this connection with nature. Uh, maybe that is a solid step or at least something we should investigate a little further when it comes to rural populations. So nature and connectedness. Yeah. So, so really kind of broadening 
what we think about connectedness, not just yeah. being social, but just being connected even to the self or even to, uh, even to the land, right? Like yeah. we, we talked about that from, from indigenous, um, uh, uh, perspectives, right? Like what, is, what is the connection to the land that we have? And I think rural folks kind of understand that in different, in different ways than I think that we see in, in, in urban spaces. Yeah. yeah. Um, I'm also kind of wondering, again, I'm coming back to this idea of psychic, um, and, and just kind of the natural isolation that folks experience in rural and northern communities. And so if you kind of have this combination of, you know, things aren't going so great for you and that tendency to withdraw and, you know, would we see the rural community as, you know, would they notice that more or is it just, uh, it's a lot easier for folks, um, really to isolate themselves, right? Like, yeah. it, you know, it, it just, it's just a very easy thing to do because there, there's less kind of, you know, kind of those, those, um, a lack of those connections that are just, um, you know, with folks necessarily that you don't necessarily know, right? Like when you're, yeah. when you're looking at an urban space, you, you, you're in the mall or you're in, you're getting yeah. your groceries or that sort of thing. And you're having interactions with folks that you don't necessarily have relationships with, but you kind of have those interactions that kind of seem to have a little bit of a protective factor to them in the rural space. You, if you choose not to, uh, you could, you could be physically alone for, for a good deal of time. Yeah. And I would, I would agree that in certain contexts for sure. So one of the other major things that I'm trying to highlight through my research is the diversity, the heterogeneity of what it means to be rural. Right. Um, and then for some communities, I can definitely agree that, you know, this ability, at least for someone to isolate themselves is going to be very high. Mm -hmm. Um, you think about these communities that are very spread out and, you know, you rarely see anyone anyway, you might not mm -hmm. notice someone who's choosing, um, or I guess more so choosing to stay home and perhaps going through you know, this psychic, right? This, this mm -hmm. intense, um, psychological pain or even physical pain as well. Um, in other communities, you, you might notice that some more, um, you know, rural means so much. I think it is very context dependent. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. You know, and there might be, uh, one of the things in my research was, you know, rural communities might be homogenous to themselves, but they're heterogeneous to each other. Right. Yeah. And so, so the diversity might not be right in within that community, but certainly you would see that diversity if you look over kind of a, a broader region of rurality. So. Yeah. And that's one of the big challenges, um, that I think we have right now is we're trying to amalgamate rural suicide oh. research. And I don't think it makes sense to do that given the heterogeneity. Um, you know, the vast majority of studies look at, you know, rural China, rural Australia, yeah. and I'm not saying it is misguided, but it might be misguided to try and apply this research base, these findings to, you know, rural Newfoundland and Labrador, you know, rural Ontario, even those two places could be vastly different from one another and require substantially different types of preventative measures and interventions. Um, so I guess this is my call to all these budding psychologists. You want a really interesting research area, get into rural suicidology and let's get some, uh, some Canadian research going. I'm not saying there is none, but I think we need more. Absolutely. Well, and I think that brings us into the, the next theme, which is kind of looking at 
what can be done in rural contexts to prevent suicide. So mm. can you shed some light on the current knowledge and limitations surrounding rural suicide prevention? And what would you say are the unique challenges that rural Canada faces in addressing this issue? Yeah, so I mean, through a lot of my sort of learning and research, there's some particular challenges that exist. Uh, so for example, I've spoken extensively to healthcare providers in a formal research setting. Um, and they've identified several key things that are barriers for rural suicide prevention um, and intervention. Um, so just sort of highlight a few like technolo technological barriers, geographical barriers. Um, you know, some individuals that I've talked to have suggested resources to rural residents and been met with, I guess, an aggressive clapback that how could I possibly take this card with a crisis number when I don't have a phone? Right. And that makes sense. Like imagine the frustration of, of that individual, like this is my option and it just does not work for me because I'm in it, or rural, right? I'm, or even remote, I guess we might call these individuals. Um, some of the other major challenges that we've noted, it's a pro, not necessarily pro gun culture, but like quite a different culture around firearms, um, firearm safety. Um, also built into this culture, sometimes there's a normalized risky substance use culture that can be a mm -hmm. barrier. So if we think about um, inhibition or impulsivity, these are things that we would link to suicide as well. And, all, uh, and substances will increase impulsivity and, and lower inhibitions. Mm -hmm. um, and then, you know, one of the bigger things I'm hearing is this lack of supply and demand. So, you know, rural regions have a big demand for mental health services, as do less rural regions, but the supply is much lower for these rural regions. Um, yeah, so these are just some of the, the, the challenges that we've identified through our research. In terms of what do we do about it, that's sort of the bigger question. Um, besides more research, there's been some pretty neat suggestions by other researchers. So more community community led initiatives, sort of one, one way to go about this. So, um, to really get some more participatory based ideas, you know, gather community members, figure out what will work from them. And, mm -hmm. and this is very context dependent. It depends on the place you are, but to ask, you know, what do they perceive as challenges and how do we overcome them? And some ideas for community-led initiatives are things like gatekeeper training. Um, so, you know, when you talked about, you know, this individual who maybe is less noticeable when they're not around so much, well, maybe a gatekeeper would be more keen or more um, able to notice slight changes, even in someone being isolated, experiencing psychic, little things like that. Um, yeah, so, I mean, this is one sort of idea. The other major idea that kind of keeps popping up is... Uh, more initiatives on tech advances um, where we can actually reach a, a broader sort of population. So even for individuals in rural regions, we need development for some tech services when appropriate, and we can sort of take advantage of those. Um, so if supply and demand is an issue, well, you know, tech could be a very easy sort of solution to that. If we can begin to implement things like telehealth, digital health, um, but again, I mean, there's challenges with those as well. But these are some core ideas that people have often highlighted in the literature. Um, yeah, I mean, those are sort of two big pieces that come to mind. Yeah, and, and the thing is, is that 
again, kind of that heterogeneity, heterogeneity, you know, that that we experience between communities. There's going to be different resources in those in those communities, and there's also even, um, you know, what the what the what the community support can look like, because mm-hmm. some of the areas of support might come from, you know, formalized mental health or or uh, physician based uh, approaches. Other approaches might be more religious based, like the community, or like the community center, or the church, or or that sort of thing. And then whether folks feel connected to that group or not, right? And that there could be different resources there. Um, one of the one of the things that you shared that kind of stuck with me, like, and we'll we'll talk about this kind of when we talk about, um, you know, some some intervention resources, but even the access to say, emergency care, right? And so I think it's very easy within our urban context to kind of say, um, you know, you have somebody with a high high level of suicide risk, you know, s- send them into eMERGE, yeah. right? Um, well, when you live two to three or more hours away from from an emergency center, you know, like that, the, the question becomes, well, who's going to take care of my responsibilities? Because I have responsibilities here, right? Which yep. is kind of an interesting dichotomy, just like, you know, you're, you're at a high risk for suicide, but yet you're concerned about, you know, going a few hours to kind of take, to take care of that. Um, but I think it's also, um, you know, how, how do, how do we do treatment or support in a way that actually can be localized or mm-hmm. and prevent an additional strain on an emergency mental health system yeah. that, that isn't always available uh, to rural communities. Yeah, I mean, that's a really interesting point. So um, you think about an individual essentially has to be isolated for two-hour travel, get to the eMERGE room. Um, on top of that, we know that most you know, behavioral emergencies related to suicide lasts about 30 minutes or less. So even by the time the individual gets to an emergency room, typically the emergency is resolved by then. And it's just like a revolving door-ish type system, which we know exists. Um, you know, I wish I had all the answers for these things and it's just (laughs) so complex. Um, I have so many ideas, um, you know, so one of the major ideas that I've been playing around with is, is um, in my head, I call it a service equality team. And it's a, it's a group of professionals, clinicians, et cetera, who are dedicated to serving underserved populations like rural individuals. And through this team, we sort of commit to providing a proportion of our client roster for underserved communities. Um, mm-hmm. And ideally this can be done in a, in a, uh, a you know, telehealth, whatever it may be, whatever works for a community and works for a clinician. Um, but I think this is an easy solution is that individuals who are already practicing could just diversify sort of their roster base and be more inclusive for all Northern peoples, um, yeah. knowing that there's a discrepancy there. And, um, I hope that this comes into fruition at some point, but I think this is a sort of a, a feasible potential solution to Mm -hmm. sort of the inequality that we're seeing in mental health services for rural Northern populations. Um, you know, with tech advances, I think stuff will get better. Uh, Mm -hmm. but you know, other than gatekeeper training, um, you know, which 
is not an intervention, right? It's more of an identification uh, prevention technique. Um, you know, it's hard to provide an answer for this right now. I think right. as professionals, we need to be pushing for government to sort of increase funding and increase sort of um, resources for us to better serve communities and yeah. find out what it is the communities want. But um, I wish I had a better answer for that. Right. Well, and, and you brought up an excellent point yesterday around like, how can we predict who's going to have a heart attack? Mm-hmm. And, 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 and the, and I've been, I've been thinking about this quite a bit because, you know, we, we talk about, you know, what can we do to prevent heart attacks or, or what are we going to do when somebody has a cardiac event? Um, I, I think of it the same way as I think of a panic attack, right? Like it is a panic attack, um, a debilitating thing or is it or is it just really like you know you stress anybody else you stress anybody out enough you know mm-hmm. they have a spike in adrenaline which is going to cause all the symptoms of of a panic attack and then and then thinking about that through even to suicidality right again you know if somebody's living with a psychic for for as long as they are you know the, these things are these things are kind of predictable but they're kind of not because you don't yeah. know when it's just going to go over that line where where it's too much, um, and so so I so in terms of prevention, I don't think we're ever going to get to a state where we can fully prevent um, mm-hmm. suicidality or suicidal thinking or suicidal behavior. Um, but I think there's a lot of things we can do to uh, you know educate you know uh, folks in their communities, really make uh, resources available. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know that are that are that are in these communities that make people just more knowledgeable yeah. about uh, what suicidal behavior looks like, and not necessarily to normalize it because, but I guess maybe an extent to normalize it because you know if folks are like one of the things I tend to say in behavior is like if we're if we're talking we're still in business right, right. like and we can we can do a lot when we're still talking to one another. And I think one of the things around suicide be, that that makes it a difficult thing is that folks are really ashamed and stigmatized for talking about these thoughts when they when they come up. And so, if we can help communities facilitate these conversations, I, I think that that would be a very positive way forward. Yeah, no, I totally agree. So, I mean, let's keep the conversations going for sure. Um, mm-hmm. Just to sort of add on that, I think often when people are concerned. My, there's this underlying fear too that even by asking a question about suicide, I'm somehow going to create a thought that, or you know, make someone want to kill themselves just by asking, "Are you suicidal?" And the research suggests that that's a hard no. Um, it's as long as we can ask so in a, a sensitive, honest, curious, compassionate way, we know that it's going to be helpful. Um, so I totally yeah. agree. I mean, these are some great ideas, and I think they they do link back to ideally government people with the sort of um power people in power Mm -hmm. to sort of spread the wealth to sort of help support people who are thinking about suicide the communities they live in the providers who are trying to support these individuals as well so yeah what yeah and i think that leads us kind of to the the last segment uh, of this interview was really to kind of look at you know, 
what what can we do in terms of assessment and intervention kind of in those in those crisis moments so um could you discuss some best practices from from your research around suicide related assessment and intervention and how these things might be applied in a rural context yeah yeah so i mean there's definitely a few sort of key content areas when it comes to assessment that we want to make sure we're asking people about um you know the Probably the most important, and research would suggest this, is past suicidal behavior. Mm -hmm. um, so we really want to get an understanding of an individual's history of suicidal behavior, both thoughts and behaviors, um, current thoughts, behaviors, plans. Um, I won't get into details on this because this is sort of the typical training someone gets when they get into mm -hmm. clinical work. This is sort of the key, like the key things to ask, mm -hmm. and rightfully so. Um, what I will say is how you ask it might be equally important. Um, right. So I'm very big on Stacey Friedenthal's and others to, to talk about a suicide narrative. And it's really just a human way of asking how the person got to the point they're at right now where they are considering killing themselves. Um, there's many ways to ask this, but it's, it's just a open, curious way of asking, um, you know, could you tell me how you got to the point right now where you're thinking about taking your own life and let them tell the story and you can gain a lot of valuable information from that, like suicide history, um, current ideations, current intent. Um, so there's one piece there. The other big piece is some commonly cited risk factors that are not suicide or direct suicide, uh, related, I guess I'll call. So is path warm is sort of the, the key go-to so things like substance use, agitation, anxiety, um, changes in mood, anger, these types of things. Um, the more that accumulate there, obviously the more concerned we'll be. I think the other key piece we want to be assessment when it comes to best practice are theory-based factors. And we know there's a lot of overlap in these theories. So even today we've talked about a few key ones, hopelessness, connection, um, psych ache. Um, so these are all things we want to be inquiring about. And again, they can come out through the narrative, right? When people talk about their experiences, I think these themes will pop up or not and give you a, again, not a perfect indication of what's going on, but a good idea on what the risk level is for this individual. And then sort of the last key thing we want to make sure we're asking about are protective factors. So, you know, the person's in your office, why? All right. So mm -hmm. what, what's keeping them alive right now? Um, and this is very informative for, for intervention as well. Um, and then for safety planning can be very informative. I know if, if they have, you know, they're connected to mom, right? You, you can go with that on, on a safety plan or build that into intervention or they're really, you know, they care about their little sister. These types of things um, are important to understand as well. Um, so the sort of the key areas we want to make sure we're sort of assessing, um, one newer, not that new, it's been, it's been around, I guess for a decade, but, um, one thing that I've really been reading a lot about, I guess, learning a lot about is the, um, the CAMS framework. So mm -hmm. collaborative assessment and management of suicidality from, from David Jobes and his team. And I'm very hopeful, uh, about the utility of this tool. So this is an assessment tool. It's a treatment planning tool. It is a, uh, safety planning tool. Um, it's used to track progress in clients, patients over time. It can be used in a research setting. So again, 
so many uses. I think it's so comprehensive. It incorporates many of these factors that I just talked mm-hmm. about. Um, and it is so flexible. So one of the other things I really love about this, and even in a, a rural context, is um, you know one of the key things we do is identify suicide drivers. So it's the thing that the client believes is driving their suicidal thoughts and behaviors. And then you get to use your amazing clinical skills in combination with what's available in your communities to try and reduce those suicide drivers, right? So it, it's trans-theoretical. It, it does not adhere to, you know, CBT or DBT, which we know are probably the most evidence-based treatments right now, but it goes beyond that to other things that might be available in the community. For example, vocational training, um, you know, medication managements. It's, it's very flexible. So I'm very hopeful that this is a tool that can we, we can implement in rural settings as well. Um, and ideally, we can see some clinical trials for rural populations, northern populations over the next I don't know, decade or so on the efficacy of, of the CAMS framework. Um, so, I mean, I, I would recommend checking it out if you've never heard of it. So it's the Collaborative Assessment Management of Suicidality. Um, and they use what's known as a suicide status form as their major sort of assessment tool and treatment tracking tool. Um, yeah, if you haven't heard of it, I, I would recommend you check it out. It's got some pretty strong support right now for um, for general population. I'm not quite sure about the efficacy for rural populations, but it's an important question that I think we can answer, right? Is this yeah. Yeah, and you provided a, a little bit of an orientation to this for for our group yesterday, and so I would also encourage our listeners to also take a look at this, and we'll we'll put a link uh, to this uh, resource in the in the podcast description. Um, I, I guess also considering some of our listeners who might not be psychologists and might just be folks who live in rural areas who might be concerned about a friend or or a loved one who might be living with, you know, some of the psychological pain and they might be seeing some behaviors that are concerning to them. Do you have any kind of pieces of advice or, or things that kind of lay people should kind of think about, about approaching folks or approaching conversations uh, around, you know, suicidal ideation? You know, how would you, how would you encourage folks to have these conversations with their friends and loved ones if they were concerned? Yeah, I mean, if well, if anyone's feeling that right now, I'm, I'm definitely um, empathize how difficult it can be to just start yeah. a conversation. This feels like such a heavy topic, and the thought of someone you care about very deeply want wanting or not wanting to live anymore must be so painful. Mm-hmm. I think when you approach it with curious, genuine concern. Um, the conversation can be very easy. And one of the biggest recommendations I would have is just to be very direct. You know, I'm concerned, you know, I've seen this in you. I'm concerned. Are you thinking about suicide? Are you thinking about killing yourself? Um, you know, I, I tend to tell people to avoid beating around the bush and saying things like, you know, are you thinking about doing something stupid, which I've heard people say before, um, it's just ineffective and validating. And to the person, this maybe this is not a stupid thing. Like this is maybe the smartest thing they think they'll ever do in their life is to kill themselves. So just be very direct with asking. Yeah. Um, in terms of resources, I mean, you know, in Canada, we do have some pretty good national resources. So we got talk suicide. So the number of talk suicide, one 456 
Um, if you're working with, um, or you know, sorry, if you're working with, or if you're concerned about younger kiddos, there's always kids help phone, yeah. um, which has an awesome text feature, a messenger feature, I believe on Facebook. Um, so, I mean, you can always suggest those resources. Um, if you know of any mental health support in your communities, you can suggest those. Um, so, I mean, those, those are my biggest things. Sincere, like, genuine, direct conversations about it. Um, you will not implant an idea into someone's head. If someone is thinking about suicide, I'm sure, I'm not, I'm not sure. From my clinical work, people are relieved when people ask about it. It's just this big weight on the shoulder that's just gone when, when you ask someone about suicide and they're actually thinking about it. So those are my recommendations. Um, right. I'm actually just going to... I think to emphasize that, that point, you're not going to put an idea in someone's head. Uh, and, um, you know, if you are concerned, go in with uh, a genuine curiosity and, and make sure folks know that you're there, right? Because yeah. having that connection is, is, is a very uh, important protective factor. Anyways, uh, Tyler, I really appreciate you taking the time today uh, from from Quarterbrook. Uh, it's great to hear from uh, psychologists uh, from coast to coast to coast through this podcast and through uh, through the rural and northern section. Uh, so anyway, thank you. Thank you so much for taking the time to uh, share a little bit about your research today. It's absolutely my pleasure. Take care. Thank you for joining us today on The Rural and Northern Psychologist. If you or someone you know is having thoughts of suicide, go to talksuicide.ca for a list of resources that are available in your local community. If you are a psychologist that's practicing in rural and northern Canada, we invite you to join us on the rural and northern section of CPA and join us for the monthly Grand Rounds and Water Cooler sessions. On November 3rd, we will be joined by Dr. Meadow Schroeder and Dr. Amanda Lintz-Martindale, who will be discussing the multiple roles of rural and northern psychologists. For more information and to register, send us an email at ruralpsych at msvu.ca or follow us on Twitter at RuralNorthPsych. This episode is brought to you by the financial support of the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada in partnership with the Rural and Northern Section of the Canadian Psychological Association. Our research team is led by Dr. Krista Ritchie and Dr. Sarah King at Mount St. Vincent University and Dr. Veronica Hutchins at Memorial University. Artwork was created by Abby Payton and social media is managed by Julia Hall. Follow us on Twitter at Rural North Psych, and we would love to hear from you. For now, remember in the wide open spaces of rural and northern Canada to take care of your mind and your community.